Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15. If you're visiting with us this morning, we, uh, our habit is to walk through the Scriptures one section at a time. And for some time now, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, we are drawing very, very close to the end. We have this week and one more Sunday spending time in the Gospel of Mark. What a journey it has been. Well, this morning, we come to the pinnacle of the book, the climax of the entire gospel. This morning, we read the reason why Jesus came into this world. This section is all at once both terrible and glorious, and it is only through what we read here that we can truly understand Jesus as who he is. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, he has been addressing the same question again and again, who is Jesus? And this morning, we see this question finally answered from a very surprising place. So Mark chapter 15, please join me in prayer. Almighty God, you are such a wonderful, merciful, loving, faithful God. As we come together this morning, we come not looking to hear from any man, but looking to hear from you. So, Father, I pray now that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see your glory, that you may do what you say you will do in 2 Corinthians 3.18 as we behold your glory, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to another. So, Father, open our eyes. Let us see wondrous things in your word. Please help us, Lord, to be affected. Please help us to grow in our knowledge of you, but even more than that, in our love for you, and that you would, by that act, transform us. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 15, we're going to look at verses 33 to 39. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. You all likely know this and have read this a number of times. One of my sons recently told me that if he could have any superpower in the world, his superpower that he would like most is to be able to read stories with new eyes every time that he has read before. So he'd like to be able to read a book like he'd never read it before. Well, when it comes to the Scriptures, we want to be able to do as much of that as we can where we can come with fresh eyes and not just speed through it. So let's read now. Pausing and reflecting so that we not grow familiar with the glorious passage that we are about to read. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus 
cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. I don't know about you, but I, I am a fan of stories, whether in book form or in film on the stage. But I like stories in particular that, are, uh, that have plot twists. I like mysteries or suspense. I like movies that have you guessing along the way. You're, you're, you feel like you're missing an element, and you, you think as soon as I capture that element, I will see it. I will get it. I will then understand. And, and once you finally have that reveal, usually toward the end of the movie, you think, how did I not see it until now? And you go back and you reread that story, you rewatch that film with new eyes, and you see it everywhere. Well, throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing various answers to the question, who is Jesus? It's never been completely hidden but it hasn't been obvious. Who is Jesus? Mark opens his gospel announcing on the first line that Jesus was the divine messianic son of God. We see this reality affirmed by God at Jesus' baptism and again at his transfiguration. It was recognized by demons, taught by Jesus himself in parables, and it was explicitly affirmed by Jesus when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin. And yet... It's not until this moment at the end of Mark's gospel when we see him hanging on a cross, when we see him beaten and bruised and bleeding and struggling to breathe, where we first, for the very first time, we see a human witness recognize his glory and confess the true identity of Jesus as God. While we see snippets of Jesus' glory in, in 10,000 different places throughout Scripture and in this world, what we see now is that the glory of Christ cannot be seen apart from the cross of Christ. While the Jews demanded signs and the Gentiles were see, eager to see demonstrations of power, Jesus reveals His glory ultimately through His death on a criminal's cross. It's a paradox. How can this be? And yet it's here at the cross that we find true hope. It's here at the cross that we find help. It's here that we see Jesus for who he truly is. It's here that we can look for strength in times of need. 
It's only through the cross that we see the glory of Christ, and it's only through the cross that we can make sense of our own lives and this broken world. So this morning, I want to behold the glory of Christ together. I want to behold the glory of Christ through the lens of the cross of Christ. We're going to look at it in Mark 15 in three sections or three acts. Act 1, the cry. Look down at verse 33. It says the sixth hour had come. The sixth hour, if you, if you have a footnote, it says this is, this is noon. Jesus has now been hanging on the cross for three hours. It says back in verse 26 that it was the, uh, that it was the third hour when they crucified him. And now it's the sixth hour. He's been hanging there, being taunted and mocked. His body has been beaten. He has endured a scourging like no other. He is bleeding and bruised. He is experiencing a kind of physical anguish that you or I have never experienced and cannot even fathom. In addition to the physical anguish, the crowds are mocking him. The crowds that that just a week before welcomed him in with cries of Hosanna in the highest. As they welcomed him in as a king and now they mock him. They have been spitting on him. He looks around, Jesus looks around and he sees no friendly faces. He has no friends nearby. We see later that some of the women were looking on from a distance. But here we see none of the disciples present encouraging him. With tears in their eyes, interceding on his behalf. He is alone. And then, and then the lights go out. Darkness comes over the whole land, it says, until the ninth hour. If you do the math, that is now three more hours, six hours in total, hanging there, gasping for breath. Suffering there by himself in agony. What, what is this darkness? We, Mark doesn't explain the darkness. We know it's not simply a cloudy day. It's not a solar eclipse because those last for minutes, not hours. The book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 9, tells us that God will send darkness upon the land in an act of judgment. Listen to this. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. You remember that in the book of Exodus, as God was delivering his people out of slavery from Egypt, before the final plague, before the death of the firstborn, you remember what that last plague was before that? It was darkness. God sent darkness upon Egypt in judgment. And after that, only those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb would be spared the final judgment. Well, here this morning, we see the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus sent to die an atoning death on behalf 
of sinners everywhere. But before that happens, darkness comes. Look down at verse 34. After hanging there on the cross for six hours, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. Some of the bystanders misunderstood the cry. They hear this and they think that he's calling Elijah. You see in Aramaic, the language that Jesus is speaking here, Eloi, the word which means my God, sounds a lot like Eliah, the word for Elijah. Jesus was not calling for the prophet Elijah to come help him. We know that the prophet Elijah has already returned in the form of John the Baptist. Rather, he was quoting Psalm 22. He was quoting Psalm 22 in fulfillment of what was prophesied about the Messiah. Psalm 22, this glorious psalm which starts off, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Jesus is quoting this psalm, crying out in anguish with a loud voice because he was alone. He was abandoned. Hanging there on the cross by himself, Jesus was forsaken, not simply by his disciples, but by God the Father himself. You see, when Jesus went to the cross in our place, he was doing this as the sacrificial lamb to bear the due penalty for our sin. That is the problem that Jesus comes into the world to address. How can a just God forgive a sinful and rebellious people? How can a God who is just avert his wrath and adopt us as his children? How can he do this? By sending his son to pay our penalty to redeem us from the, from the debt that we owe in a way that we could never do on our own. We see this in, in Paul's writing in Galatians chapter 3. He says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do so? By becoming a curse, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he's quoting from Deuteronomy here, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You think about this. What, what we're saying about the Son of God, what we're saying about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, God incarnate is that he was forsaken in this moment by God, that he was enduring the wrath of God, that he was enduring the curse of God on our behalf. To help us feel the, the effect of this, I, I, I look to one of the, the best writers on this topic that I know of, R.C. Sproul. And this is what... Dr. Sproul writes, 
when Christ was hanging on the cross, the Father, as it were, turned His back on Christ. He removed His face. He turned out the lights. He cut off His Son. There was Jesus who in His human nature had been in a perfect, blessed relationship with God throughout His life. There was Jesus, the Son in whom the Father was well pleased. Now He hung in darkness, isolated from the Father, cut off from fellowship, fully receiving in Himself the curse of God. Not for his own sin, but for the sin he willingly bore by imputation for our sake. Friends, Jesus was forsaken by God so that you and I would never have to be. He endured the wrath that we Deserve. He died in our place. He deserved no wrath, no judgment, no curse, no punishment. He alone is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. The sin that separated you and I from God the Father, that's what held him on the cross. It was not the nails. It was not the threat of the guards, the soldiers, the centurions. It was the sin that we deserve to be punished for. It was the lying, the self-righteous anger, the selfishness and pride that we all know so well. It was the self-sufficiency and gossip, slander, the gluttony, the immorality, vulgarity, and lust. For every act of envy and oppression for our love of money and unforgiveness for these and millions and millions of others that we are barely conscious of, it was for these sins that Jesus hung on that cross, enduring the wrath of God the Father on our behalf, the judgment that should have fallen upon us instead falls upon Jesus. Do you know the peace and blessing of God upon your life? Do you rise in the morning and enjoy walking outside and enjoying this, this fall weather and, and breathing in air and not experiencing judgment? We do only because Jesus stayed on that cross. He did not come down when the soldiers taunted him. Come down, save yourself, come down from the cross. If you are God, come down. He could have with ease. But Jesus stayed there. He hung there on that cross. Aren't you glad that Jesus stayed on the cross and did not come down? in answer to their taunts. Again, R.C. Sproul says that the glory of the gospel is this. The one from who 
we, the one from whom we need to be saved is the one who saved us. That's the glory of the gospel. John Stott says it this way, divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. That is why Jesus cried out. That is why Jesus was forsaken. It was to purchase our redemption. It was to pay our penalty. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus said in, in John 10 that the good shepherd, what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. That's exactly what we see Jesus doing here in this text this morning. For apart from that, had he come down from the cross, had he saved his life, had he demonstrated, I can do this, had he come down out of his agony, you and I would still bear the judgment and the wrath of God ourselves, and we would not make it. You see, friends, the glory of the cross is seen in that it is the cross that we can look to for the ultimate proof of the love of God for sinners like you and me. The cross where Jesus hung and died is also the place for us to look in the midst of our own suffering. We have a Savior who can sympathize. We have a Savior who has suffered and, and, and experienced torment that you and I will never know. And so we can look to him and say, Jesus, you know. You know my pain. You know my suffering, which seems undeserved, which seems unjust, which is absolutely inconvenient. So friend, if that's you this morning, you have a friend in Jesus that can sympathize. In my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. The story doesn't end there. Look with me at verse 37. Act 2, the curtain. After Jesus cries out one final time, he breathes his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, two things stand out right away. When you read this and, and you, you wonder about the text, I hope you don't just speed through the text as you read your scriptures each day, but you stop and wonder, what did he cry out? What did he say? Luke tells us that, that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John also tells us that at some point before he breathed out his last, he said to Telestai, it is finished. But Mark doesn't say. Mark, Mark is drawing our attention 
to something else here. It is not his point what Jesus said that is important, but for Mark's point, what he is saying is that when Jesus cried out one final time, when he breathed his last, stuff began to happen. The temple is torn in two. Immediately, the temple of the, of the, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Now, there are actually two curtains in the temple. There was an outer curtain and there was an inner curtain. Mark doesn't say which one we're talking about here. Both were significant. Both were big. They were like 80 feet tall. They were hundreds of pounds heavy, certainly. You can imagine how heavy these curtains are. These were much bigger curtains that, that shielded the temple. The outer curtain was intended to keep outsiders, Gentiles, or anyone else who was unclean from entering the tabernacle of God. But the inner curtain, the inner curtain was to keep everyone out of the Holy of Holies. The inner curtain was not to be disturbed. It was not to allow anyone in. No one could enter where the presence of God would be encountered directly. No one, that is, except for one man. The great high priest, one time a year, once a year, the great high priest through great ordeal, through, through all kinds of work, was allowed one day to go in to this inner curtain. The point is, the way to God was hindered. Access to God was limited. This is a foreign concept to you and I, this side of the cross, but back then it was unthinkable that you could simply commune with God directly, that you could approach His throne with boldness, with confidence. Rather, one would need to take an animal to offer as a sacrifice for your sin. You would need to take it to the great high priest. You, we heard about a meteor. We would need to ask him to mediate on our behalf. To intercede for us. One could not simply approach the throne of God on one's own. And here in this moment, in one sentence, in this glorious moment, we are told that that would no longer be the case. Jesus came to abolish this hindrance. He came to pave a new path. Hebrews chapter 10 interprets this for us. It helps us understand this and feel the full effect. It says we have confidence, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. He goes on and says that we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We belong there, the author of Hebrews says. Jesus paves a new path and he welcomes us in. Pastor and teacher Sinclair Ferguson said that with the tearing of the curtain, this is what happened. The old established priestly ritual for entrance into the presence of God had now been abolished. The temple now stood desecrated by God himself. Jesus' death had created a new way into God's presence. Brothers and sisters, what this means is that not only have our sins been forgiven, but we are now given direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. I've heard it said something to the effect of, to have your sins forgiven by God the judge, 
That's a good thing. That is a thing worth celebrating. That is, a worth, that is worth celebrating and rejoicing over. To have your sins forgiven by God the judge, but to be welcomed into a relationship in the throne room with God the Father? That's something altogether more infinitely glorious. Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can pray with confidence to God the Father. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can go to Him with our burdens and our anxieties. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we can go to Him in our weakness. Because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross, we don't have to take a sacrificial lamb. But we can approach with boldness, with confidence, with full assurance and true heart. And we can intercede on behalf of others. We get to enjoy the priesthood of all, of all believers because of Jesus' work on the cross. The curtain has been torn into. The way to God has been opened. All are invited in. Come. Commune with your God. Finally, verse 39. We see the confession. The centurion has been there the whole time. The centurion would be a hard man. He was a soldier. Centurions were soldiers who had risen through the ranks. And by this point, he would have been given charge over somewhere between 80 and 100 soldiers. He was a leader. He was a commander of rough men. And Roman soldiers in particular were notorious for their brutality and the severity of their physical warfare. So this guy that we see here in verse 39, this guy had seen violence up close and personal. In all likelihood, this man had seen hundreds of people die up close and personal. He would not have been a man given to sentimentality. He would not be easily overcome emotionally. Unlikely that he was a religious man whatsoever. And this man, we read had been standing there with the other soldiers the entire time overseeing the execution of Jesus Christ. He was watching for hours. He was waiting to see how things would go and to make sure nothing got out of hand. Certainly if the disciples showed up, if they tried to take Jesus and rescue him and deliver him from the cross, he would have punished them severely, speared them to death, probably. But here we see the centurion, verse 39, watching. It says that he's facing Jesus. In all likelihood, think about this. This centurion, in all likelihood, he knew nothing else about Jesus. He hadn't, like the disciples, heard his teaching. He hadn't, with, the, with you know, witnesses all over the, the, the countryside, witnessed the miracles. What he knows is that this man has been tried and found guilty. And this centurion is now responsible for the execution of the Son of God by crucifixion. The most brutal form of death. He'd done this before. And yet, for some reason... Look at your text. We read that when the centurion saw that in this way he breathed his last, 
in this way. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, what do you do with that? What, what is it about the death of this man upon the cross that is revelatory? You'd certainly expect that had, had Jesus hung there and just shot the nails out of his hands, had he then risen up in the sky or floated down to the earth, certainly then you'd say, okay, this guy is something else. But that's not what happened. He sees him breathing his last, crying loudly. Maybe he heard the words that John and Luke record. We, we don't know. Mark doesn't say. What we do know is that this centurion witnesses the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that is enough to reveal to him that he was indeed the Son of God. It is here for the first time in the gospel that a human being sees this and confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, which is how Mark refers to him in the opening line of the gospel. Here we have an outsider, a, a pagan executioner, a vile man. Something here broke through his spiritual darkness, opened his eyes, softened his heart, and moved him to confess the deity of Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ is finally seen fully when it is seen through the cross of Christ. Apart from the cross of Christ, one cannot see the true glory of Jesus Christ. It is not until we see him on the cross that we can understand Jesus for who he is. Lamb of God given for us. He is the good shepherd who not only fed, nourished, and protected his sheep, but he gave his life for us. And therefore, a view of Jesus apart from the cross will never be an accurate one. In a world like ours, where comfort and ease are prized, a theology of glory, of God's power, drives out a theology of the cross. But we preach Christ crucified, Paul says. It is at the cross, not in his power of deliverance, that this centurion sees the glory of Christ. This cross should shape our view of Jesus. This cross should shape our view of ourselves. This cross should shape our view of this world. It should shape everything about us. It should shape our approach to God, and it should shape our approach to others. Look at this centurion. He is a picture of hope for every one of us, isn't he? This vile, brutal man. This man who led the soldiers who mocked and beat Jesus. As they stripped him, he was there. As they nailed his hands to the cross, he gave approval. As they watched him bleed and struggle to breathe for hours, he simply looked on. This man was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He was unclean. He was a brutally violent man who oversaw the execution of the Savior who was completely, he alone, the Savior, was completely innocent and put up no struggle. And this man oversees all this. Surely this man was an unlikely convert if ever there has been one. Imagine, were you there? Imagine you're one of the disciples. Imagine you're one of the women that's looking on from a distance and you see what these soldiers are doing, what the centurion is doing. What are you thinking 
about him. And yet this man stood there overseeing the last breaths of our Savior. And when Jesus cried out one final time and when he breathed his last breath, this man's heart is undone. His eyes are open and he confesses, truly, this man was the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, have you ever found yourself feeling unworthy? Have you ever found yourself wondering whether, whether you've, you've, just, you've gone too far? You have borne out the Lord's patience. There's no grace left for you. Look to this centurion. It matters not whether you're a centurion or a prostitute, whether you are a banker, a missionary, a student, a father, a mother. The curtain has been ripped in two. The barrier to God's grace is gone. There is grace and forgiveness for all sinners, and you are no exception. There is more grace in Him, it has been said, than sin in us. Are there people in your life who you would look at like this centurion? You might think, no. No, this person, they're not a likely convert. They're not likely to come to faith. I'm not going to waste my breath sharing the gospel with them. They're clearly hard. They're clearly pagan. Look at the kind of parties they have. Look at the kind of lifestyle they live. <coughs> Are there people that you think would never possibly confess the deity of Christ? Let the confession of this man convince you otherwise. Let the confession of this man cast that faithless thought out of our hearts. So let me ask you this morning, as has been asked throughout the Gospel of Mark, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that he is? See, it is not enough for us to simply read this passage and nod our heads. Do you see the glory of the Savior? Do you see the glory of the cross? Do you see the glory of God who sent his son to live the life that we are called to live and to die the death that we deserve? Do you see that and realize your only hope is in the fact that he stayed on the cross and paid your penalty? Or do you think, no, I'm, I, I think I'm okay. I think I'm, I'm okay, basically, with a man upstairs, lived a, an okay life. I'm not like the centurion. I've never murdered anyone. Do you see the cross of Christ as your only hope? Has it gripped and shaped you? Does it inform your singing? I invite you this morning to look to the cross where the Savior was forsaken so that you and I never would have to be. Look to the cross where you wonder whether your sins could be forgiven. Every one of them is nailed to that cross. There is not one of them that Jesus is not able to bear. Because he hung on that cross, because he did not come down from the cross, because he endured the wrath of God, you and I can stand here today completely forgiven. You and I have access to him because he endured the punishment that we deserve. We have hope because he bled and died, because he tore the curtain in two. We have free, free and direct access to God the Father. 
Because he bled and died for us, we are able to sing. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? It is only because of the cross of Christ that we see his glory and that we can rejoice in his glory and that we can proclaim his glory. Do you feel that? Does that make you want to sing? Has the glory of Christ through the cross gripped you and shaped you? Oh, how I hope that it does and that it will. Jesus did not focus his life, brothers and sisters, on living his life to the fullest. He, he was not about pursuing the American dream. Rather, what he set his sights on was fulfilling the mission that the Father had sent him on. The mind of Christ was not dominated by the living of his life, but by the giving of his life. That's what he was about. Jesus gave his life for ours, not simply dying in our place, but bearing the punishment and the wrath that we deserved. He lived the life that we are called to live, and he died the death that we deserve, that we might have life in him, and that we who once, once were God's enemies, would be given complete access to God, our Father. Tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to a cross of wood. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. So we stand forgiven at the cross. Please join me in prayer. Father, we, we, we come this morning. Every single one of us come in absolute and utter need of your grace. Some days, Lord, we're more aware of our need for grace than other days, but there is no day, there is not a single day, Lord, that we have lived so purely and so faithfully that we don't completely need your grace. And, and Lord, there is also no day that we have lived so atrociously that we are beyond the reach of your grace. So, Father, this morning, we thank you for that grace. We thank you that because you so love the world, you sent your son Jesus to come into this world to live a perfect life and to die a criminal's death on our behalf. Lord, it is, it is unfathomable. It is so hard for us to grasp and to understand how Jesus could be forsaken on the cross, to endure your wrath, to endure the curse due us. And yet, Lord, we see the glory of our Savior as he did so. So, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for tearing the curtain in two. Thank you for giving us hope, redemption, and forgiveness. We pray all this in the glorious name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.